Hey guys, it's Robert. If you haven't listened to episode 358 yet, head over and do that now. This is part two of the series. In this episode, Dan continues to share his stories of the soldiers that he served with and their heroic efforts in combat. If you like the content of the show, please be sure to check out our Patreon site, Mentors the Number 4 MIL. Subscribe or follow our podcast on all audio platforms. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel. And now, part two with Dan Pinion. I would like to talk about Sergeant Marquis quick, who is one of the greatest individuals I've ever met in my life. And the bottom line is Sergeant Marquis quick, and I say this with honesty and conviction, should receive the Medal of Honor. And I am hoping this book, this podcast, lecture, anything I can do to spread the word spreads the word because what I'm about to tell you will, will show you why. And we failed him miserably in multiple fronts. Sergeant Marquis Quick was my driver. So backing up, I was fired as a platoon sergeant at the end of a 17-month tour, knee surgery, told you're going to be a first sergeant, frocked a first sergeant, and sent back to the brigade reconnaissance crew to lead them and get ready to go back. By the way, we're going to do small kill team operations, and you're going to work with asymmetric warfare group and Navy SEAL teams. Uh, we ended up working with Navy SEAL team three and five. Uh, so you guys might know Task Force Bruiser with Jocko Wilnig and uh, and Leif Babin. Uh, well, and, and again, I'm not trying to be like, hey, I'm famous. I know some people. I'm just telling you who we worked with. And then the American sniper, Chris Kyle, taught and trained half our snipers in combat. Our job was to find enemy snipers and kill them. And we were very good. Sometimes that meant taking over our house and letting them attack us and then killing them. Sometimes it was sneaking into a house. What we tried to do is small teams, observe, and then wait, and then ambush them when they try to set up IEDs or counter sniper positions, whatever they're trying to do. Our job was to find them and kill them, and we were doing very good. Sergeant Marquis Quick was my driver when I took over as first arm. Just like we were talking about driving and why most of us drive ourselves nowadays, because Sergeant Marquis or Marquis sucked at driving. <laughs> he was not a good driver. I have a fear of heights and I have a fear of leaning in a vehicle and he could make my Humvee lean and I got him fat now. <laughs> Wasn't as fat back then, but I don't know if he's doing it on purpose to get fired, but I hate when I'm leaning because I think I'm going to roll over and I had a, I almost caused the rollover as a private driver. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it comes from. And he sucked at driving. So I knew one, he had to be fired for that for sure. Two... He, as a driver, as a first sergeant in our troop, he became your admin guy. He was your 42-alpha personnel services person, and he was amazing. He was probably the best person I saw taking care of soldiers. It was so good that the platoon sergeants weren't doing their job, platoon leaders weren't doing their job, and squad leaders weren't doing their jobs because Marquis did it for him. So that was reason number two. Like, he's got to go because he's too good at what he's supposed to be doing, and I need him to be a scout. So again, I had just taken over this unit and I go into the commander's office. I'm like, a uh, specialist quick needs to stop being my driver. 
And they're like, no, first on our, like, he's great. I said, no, that's why he needs to stop. We're getting ready for Iraq. He's been here a year. I don't want him out of his MOS too long. And he's not a good driver. <laughs> so I said, I'd rather him. He needs to go be promoted. He needs to be a sergeant and he needs to lead scouts. So he's like, okay, just take us through gunnery for sergeant and switch him out. And I already picked out the next driver. There's a stud, Regan Barr. And I was like, that's going to be my driver. This kid's awesome. So in gunnery, we were driving back, you know, you guys know, getting chow logistics for soldiers. And we were all the way out of Grafenberg, Germany, range 301. So it's a good 30, 40 minute drive back to Camp Aachen to get your hot chow. Mm-hmm. So we would take turns, who went back, et cetera. And then I remember one time me and Marquise were driving back out towards range 301. And he started talking about combat. He had never been in combat. Now, most of our troop from 2003, 2004 were seasoned. We had all done a deployment and the leaders that were coming in all just came from a deployment. I mean, that was our time. But Marquise had never been on a true deployment or combat. So he's asking her general questions, what it's like, et cetera, et cetera. And I try to be honest. And I'll never forget him talking about, he said he was scared to die and he was scared to let his soldiers down. That was the number one fear when we're talking about leadership. Uh, I don't know if it's foreshadowing or what have you, but obviously I was like, do your job, take care of your soldiers as you know, and I promise you everything will work out okay. Obviously where this is going, it did not work out okay. After gunnery, he was promoted to sergeant, he was put in second platoon, and he was leading soldiers. So now we're back, let's skip forward to Ramadi 2006, small kill team, and we're supporting 1st Battalion, 37th Armor, best armor battalion in the Army ever. Uh, 1st Brigade, ready first. And we're setting up a small kill team operation. So we would set up on a rooftop, we would take over a house, put the family in the most secure room that we could find and then work with the family with the interpreter, the platoon sergeant, platoon leader, or who was leading that mission in that house while the rest would get up onto the roof one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and start hand drilling through the, the three foot walls that surrounded all the roof, flat rooftops, trying to get sniper overlook positions onto where we suspected somebody would lay an IED or where we thought they would set up in other houses to overwatch, to try and kill our soldiers as they were building combat outposts. We had the houses, they went in and Marquise was up on the roof with bar, sergeant wall and some others. And three grenades came over the wall that they had found out where they were. I think most people know that you can only take over somebody's house for so long before the enemy knows or the neighbors, because if the kids aren't out in the street or the neighbors aren't saying hi, something's wrong. And that's, you know, the word gets going to spread. So normally within eight hours to 12 hours, we would have a soft compromise, we would call it, where we didn't think we would have to leave yet. So we'd either relook our fighting positions, prepare for an attack, and then get ready to kill the enemy. Or we would gut it out, seeing what we could see. If you had a hard compromise, that means a pretty big attack we thought was going to happen, especially when the streets got quiet. Everybody knows the, the warning signs and everybody's inside all of a sudden. You're about to get attacked. And we had a hard compromise, we would look at leaving right away. Well, they had a soft compromise. And they were beginning to make plans to exfil off the sites from the two mutual houses. Well, the enemy got us. And they were ahead of us, and they tossed three grenades, hand grenades, over the wall, on top of the roof. 
Now, Sergeant Quick was right next to the stairs that went downstairs, back down to the second floor. The other soldiers were spread out along the rooftop at their, their fighting positions or sniper positions. As the grenades come over, Regan Barr, who was my driver, and then I had to put him in second platoon when he made E5 because you don't want him as your driver and he need the lead soldiers too. And I figured putting my communication guy as my driver would keep my Blue Force tracker and radios working. So I put the scout doing scout stuff. Regan Barr sees the grenades, yells grenades. Everybody else dives outward for cover. Not Sergeant Quick. Sergeant Quick could have gone right down the stairs. Instead, he jumped towards the grenades while everybody else was jumping out. He did exactly what you train not to do. Seek, you know, lay flat, get your head down, extremities tucked in as far as possible until the explosions go off. But you see it in the movies where people go towards the grenade. Well, that's what Sergeant Quick did. Sergeant Quick dove onto the grenades saving the lives of six of his brothers in arms on top of a rooftop in Iraq in August of 2006. After the explosions go off, Regan Barr gets up. He's hurting, but he's moving. Sergeant Wall was already putting a tourniquet on himself, and now they're starting to treat the others. The other was Sergeant Rodriguez, the soldier I only knew for three days, who can't feel his legs and has shrapnel metal in his back, and now they're trying to look for the enemy to clear Meanwhile, Batoon Sar is working all the reports, starting to work casualties, and the medics running upstairs with Specialist Soto, Ruiz Soto, to try and treat all the wounded. And Sar Quick, they see him. You can see the blast fragments, and Sar Quick was dead. Uh, so it's he jumped towards grenades to save his brothers. They evac him. The Bradleys were full that came to rescue them. So those who could run or walk, were outside the Bradley, through an enemy-held territory, evacuating out while the wounded that could no longer walk or run were inside. They get back to their vehicles. I am now moving towards Charlie Med to meet them and Sergeant Quick. As the Humvees are heading back towards Charlie Med, they get hit by three pressure-plated IEDs. All in a row, boom, boom, boom. As one of the last streets before they get back to Camp Ramadi, not one single vehicle or person was injured. It was all heat. They were going so fast, or whatever reasons, it scared the living daylights out of all of them. And thankfully, none of them were hurt beyond what was previously discussed. They get back. You know, the Bradleys showed up first to Charlie Med, was sort of quick. He was pronounced dead right there on the spot as we brought them in. And then most people know Mortuary Affairs is right next to the hospital for good reason, unfortunate reasons. And they brought him on there and they started preparing him for his angel flight. I remember the doctor, when they pronounced him dead, looking me in the eye and telling me something about him not having gear or this and that because the hole was too big. As he's pronouncing one of my soldiers, who was my driver, who was our teammate and brother for, I've now known him almost a year, dead, he is telling me about why he thinks he died. I don't even know the full story. All I know is grenades, quick as dead, evacuating. That's the story I'm getting as I'm piecing stuff together. I didn't even know about the heroic act yet. And this doctor, so the doctor and I had words right there on the spot. He shut up, and then they moved quick to Mortuary Affairs. 
One of the hardest things you ever have to do is just like, hopefully no parent ever has to do is identifying somebody. And I felt like a parent as a first sergeant. I mean, he was, he was like my brother, younger son, whatever you want to call it. You have to identify him. Uh, it was, it's quiet. It's just like you see in TV shows. And I remember kissing Marquise's forehead. I said words that will stay between us. And I said, yes, that's him. Sign here, sign here, sign here. And I remember going outside as the rest of the casualties are coming. And now my focus goes to them. They're obviously all asking about quick. And I am telling them the truth. You lost your brother. It was a very sad day. It was a very hard day that day on that mission. And we're now watching Sergeant Rodriguez getting ready to be evac'd, possible paralyzation. And then I look at Regan Barr, who is limping, and you see blood on his boot. And next thing you know, I'm like, hey, take that thing off. And the medics are over there, and he's got fragments in his boot, but still ran next to the Bradleys as they were evacuating, fought through the pain. Come to find out, you talk about the million-dollar wound, he also got shrap metal in his butt cheek. <laughs> I didn't figure that one out. But a few days later, he figured it out. It just tells you what soldiers do. Now, remember, these are 19- and 22-year-old men doing stuff you would never ask normal people to do, and they're doing it with amazing tenacity and heroics. I mean, it's just amazing to watch these people. At a very low point, the heroics you see. So what did we do for Sergeant Marquis Quick? We gave him a bronze star and a purple heart because that's what you give all soldiers who sacrifice for their country. And we failed. You don't realize until moments, months, years later what they truly did because we were in a fight for our lives. And I failed because I was not looking back. I was looking forward. And I was thinking, what's next? What's the next mission? What's the next fight? What do I have to do to make that platoon go out that gate to fight our enemy and win when hopefully never having to go to Charlie Met again? And that's what I focused. And I failed to look at the actions of a Chris Buckley from an IED shielding himself who got nothing. I failed Regan Barr trying to open the IED to save his brother's or open the Humvee to save his brother from the IED. I failed to recognize Sergeant Marquis quick and heroic acts or bar wounded running next to him, fighting off the enemy. You don't think about any of that stuff in the moment. And I should have. The commander and I and our leaders, we should have. And we didn't. All I thought about is short soldiers. And I have a mission in a couple hours to go back out there. How do I do it? And how do I try and save them? And I took very bad approach to certain stuff. I started physically inspecting pre-combat checks, pre-combat inspections to make sure they had all the gear, all the gear was worn correctly, all the gear was working. I would test them when they come back from mission, if I was back, and I would test them on weapons to see how much they knew about the Mark 19 or the 240 Bravo and could the driver do what the gunner did? Could the gunner do what the TC did? Could the TC load all the radios himself if the driver was hurt and call for help? And if they didn't do it right, I said, here's your MRE. In combat, I wouldn't even let me eat hot food. I took a horrible approach at leadership. Uh, 
but I didn't want to see them the way I saw Sergeant Marquis quick. I didn't want to hold their hand right before they put a soldier to sleep to cut off his leg. So I tried everything not to allow that to happen again. And it didn't until the last story. If so, it's okay. I keep talking the mm-hmm. stories. Okay. So that's the end of August or middle of August. We continued the same missions and now we're in December and we almost have control of the entire city of Ramadi from June to December to take over Ramadi and make it safe. And we are almost mission complete. We just squeezed them together. And every time we took a city block, and this is where you look at your tank battalions, your infantry battalions, those companies, those engineers, every time we took a block, they built a combat outpost and held it in the middle of the enemy and said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And by the way, let's continue to clear. And that's what they, that's what they did. We just supported them and they got attacked every single moment of the day and night. We are now almost done. We are in the last section of Ramadi in December. And it's the, it's the section the Marines held. So we were under, our brigade was under 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, 2nd MEF. Meanwhile, with Navy SEAL teams, with AWG, with all these specialties, and we we're almost there. And the Marine battalion we had, had a section that they did not go in. Again, we can argue facts and Marines don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what was relayed to me and what I saw with my own eyes. There was a section that they quarantined off with the road barriers and no vehicles or people went into that section. And they said, scouts, you're going in there. We're going to set up our last combat outpost right here. We've been tracking the sniper that is detailed in a movie and a book. And no one can catch him. And they have intel that he is coming to Ramadi to kill American soldiers. And our job was to find him and kill him. So we had a beautiful map that Staff Sergeant Damon Walker came up with and our XO, John Villasenor. And they built the whiz wheel of magic that showed time of day, types of attacks, locations of attacks. We could tell you on a Tuesday at this time, an attack will generally occur right here and probably have 90% accuracy every single time. Mm. And we didn't have the three-letter words helping us out. You know, our, our SEALs and other people probably had all those people. We had Staff Sergeant Walker and John Villasenor on a map with push pins taking every single report the brigade ever received for the last two years and the unit we replaced and building this. And I remember AWG coming in and like, we're taking a picture of this and we're using this. And then we're using how you do sensitive site. What's it called? Sensitive site exploitation. Exploitation. SSE. Mm -hmm. We're going to do sensitive site exploitation and you just wrote the SOP for us. I mean, that's how good our soldiers were figuring this stuff out. So we knew where the outpost was, and we generally knew five locations that this famed sniper was going to attack from. So this gets to PFC David Dietrich, Marysville, Pennsylvania. Dietrich was a private PV2 who 
grew up homeless. Now, again, I'm telling you what he told me, what his friends told me, or brothers in the army. There was a news article later and reports. I'm not saying they contradict anything I say. They just paint a different picture. I'm telling you what I saw and what's fact with me. David Dietrich was abandoned by his parent, his mom, at a young age and left on his grandparents' steps. Marysville, Pennsylvania. He then went into foster care growing up. He was a slow learner who loved football and generally did not get along with the outside world because maybe it was too fast, but he always wanted to be a soldier. And I think there was a learning disability. All he wanted to do was be a soldier. He lived in a car for a year. This is what David told me. He lived with his local fire department that would take him in. But to be a soldier, he had to graduate high school. So his mission was to graduate high school. And he had foster parents in and out, didn't didn't do great at school. I remember him and I, and we'll get to why, but him and I were, he was filling sandbags. I was talking to him while he was filling sandbags. Uh, (laughs) And we were stacking them because we were building steps to our flagpole that was on top of a HESCO barrier. And I didn't want soldiers getting hurt. So we're like, you know what? We're going to build steps. Like, hey, Dietrich, guess what you're going to help me do? And I'll tell you why he was doing it. But, and every morning he would raise and lower the flag. And he started telling me about his life. And this is what I'm repeating here. And I remember asking him, because I didn't have what he had. I had a good household. I used to, I said it was average in an interview, or I may even say it in the book. I have to go back and read. I didn't realize how lucky I was. I had two parents. I had siblings. I had cousins. I had a community that loved us. Uh, I had a really lucky childhood. Big house, woods. We can hunt for days, hunt fish, hike. Anyway, David didn't have that. And I remember asking him, what was it like living in a car for a year? And he told me he used to volunteer to clean up after basketball and football games in the winter, fall, winter. So he could eat the popcorn that was left on the stands after the games. That was his food. But all he wanted to be was a soldier. So he graduates high school. I don't know how. And joins the army. I can't tell you if he should have been in the army or not. I can tell you there's paperwork that said he was fully qualified and I believe it. I am also telling you he had, he was a slow learner. He wasn't stupid. He didn't have a mental handicap. He's just slower than normal people. He graduated basic. He might even have been recycled. I I don't think I've proven that one uh, or disproven that one yet. But he graduated as a 19 Delta Cavalry Scout. I was a drill sergeant. I promise you when I was a drill sergeant, if you graduated, you earned it. And I know all my drill sergeant brothers in the Cav world are probably the same. So I'm telling you, he earned it. They fly him to Germany in August. We are now taking all our casualties. I start calling back to rear D and I'm like, you send me everybody you have. And I remember, oh my God, Captain Dennis Wagner, Wagner, Captain Wagner was our rear D. And I remember him saying, first aren't, what about Singletary? So I got to go off track again real quick. Singletary showed up to me as a scout blind in the left eye. So I'm just Telling you the time of when soldiers were entering the army in our third, fourth year of Afghanistan and Iraq, I don't know what the standards were, but I had a calf scout show up to me blind in the left eye. And I remember the person, 
platoon sergeant, Sergeant O, bring him in there. He's like, first sergeant, you have to see this. And he puts a counseling statement. He was doing initial counseling for this kid, Singletary, Donald Singletary. And he's like, Singletary, sign it. And Singletary goes, and I'm like, what's the matter with you, boy? And he tells me, I cannot see out of my left eye. I'm like, well, that's not possible because you can't be combat arms, son. And he's like, no, I've been this way since birth. Mm. Very low vision. I fail every vision test. The recruiter knows. I told the drill sergeants in basic training. They did tests. I am blind in this eye. So we're like, okay, we're going to do the good army thing. And we're going to send you to a medical board. Meanwhile, we're ramping up to go back to Iraq. And it's not going to be fun. The medical board comes back. And again, I will never talk bad about the army. I'm just telling you what happened. The medical board comes back and says, yeah, we're going to make him a truck driver. I'm like, you lost your minds. I'm like, he can't even see out of the left side of his vehicle, which if you're driving in combat, you have to scan that side. I'm like, you're going to send, make him a truck, 88 mile truck driver. They're like, yeah, Roger that execute. So we send a truck driver school that lasted two hours. He in process and they're like, yeah, go back home. And they sent him back to us. So we put him in supply. They're like, hey, we're going to give you, we got you, we're going to war, and we made him supply. Now, fast forward, Captain Wagner's like, even Singletary? I'm like, send him. That's how bad, I took a one-eyed man into combat, knowing I was going to put him in supply, take our supply clerk and make him a 50 cal gunner because we cross-trained our supply guys too. PLL clerks, you name it, they were all trained to be 19 Delta Cavalry Scouts, infantrymen, et cetera. That's how desperate we were. And I was like, yep, send Singletary. So now he is agreeing to send me a one-eyed man. Donald, I love you. It's even better because when he got out of the army, he fought MMA. I'm like, well, I hope they know just to get you on your left side (laughs) because you won't see it coming. But he held his own. In fact, it's it's even better. He got shot in the chest by a home invader, picked up his gun and killed the guy or shot the guy who was invading his house. Uh, shot in the chest and then picked up a gun and killed the invader or shot the invader two years ago. So for Captain Wagner to say, hey, I don't know if this new private Dietrich should come. The man who just sent me a one-eyed man. I was like, send him. I was like, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. There's just something different about Dietrich. I was like, send him. I'll be the judge. That's a decision I will regret to the day I die. And me and Dietrich up in Fiddler's Green together. So they send Dietrich with the other replacement soldiers. And in Kuwait, Dietrich loses his Kevlar. Probably just set it on top of wherever they were bunking or whatever. And somebody decided they needed it more, whatever the reason. So the other soldier, now we never flew in the daytime. We only flew at night. So the enemy won't attack us every time we're flying into our base camp. So they come up from Kuwait, the helicopters land or wherever, Al-Assad, or not Al-Assad, Q, whatever, where we had a base and then they'd go to helicopters. They come to us and I'm like, hey, where's Dietrich? All these new kids are like, "Uh, first sergeant, he's still in Kuwait. I was like, why is the kid in Kuwait? And they tell me about the Kevlar. So I assigned them to their platoons. They start training. Every new soldier we had had to go through a certification where the, the team leader or squad leader up through the platoon leader, had to look me and the commander in the eye and say they are ready for missions. We had learned, especially, and again, I don't think we did anything wrong with Sergeant Rodriguez when he came from another battalion because he had come from a combat deployment. But we put extra steps in place to make sure that every soldier was ready. 
And when all of them looked us in the eyes that he's ready, 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 that soldier went on mission. Dietrich comes about a week later, strong, short, probably five six, five seven. You know, I'm six two, six three, and he comes just a linebacker, running back, looking strong kid. And I start talking to him at like two or three in the morning, whenever they landed. And I would ask him a question. He would look me in the eye and then he would pause. And it's like, you could see the wheel turn in and then he would answer. It was like a delay and I didn't understand it. So I already had something in my head from Captain Wagner in the past telling me, and now losing his Cavalier in Kuwait. Now he comes to me and I'm like, what is going on? So I tell the commander, oh yeah, like, yeah, I got to get this kid checked out. Uh, so because of all our losses and everything going on, we became very good he- friends with behavioral health and behavioral health. I called them and said, I'd like you to evaluate this new private. So I assigned him to first platoon who had Sergeant first class, Joseph Marco, who was a specialist with me when I was a corporal, obviously way years back. And first Lieutenant John O'Hare, one of the most competent armor officers I have met in my life. And that platoon was badass. That's the only way to say it. It did not matter the mission. You gave it to first platoon if you wanted it done. Nothing against the other platoons. I'm just telling you, first platoon was badass. So I gave him the first platoon and I told Sergeant Marco, I said, like, get him ready. When you're on mission, he stays back and we'll train him. If I'm on mission and you're on mission, then we'll give him to the headquarters platoon. But he'll stay with me when you're out. And if we're both out, he'll stay with headquarters and learn the stuff in the talk. So that's how he was filling sandbags, helping me take down a flag. Because if they go on mission, I'm like, hey, let's raise and lower the flag. Because we would honor people with the flags each day, put new flags up each day in a certificate. And we trained them. Behavioral health came back and after a month and said, he's good. We could even see the stuff from basic training. He's good. He just learns differently. It doesn't mean he's not picking it up. He just learns at a different speed. So there, uh, yeah, there's a little cost caution in there. And I remember the behavioral health specialist telling me like, Hey, he looked at you like a father figure. Now I had two young boys at home. I had a two year or a one year old and a seven year old. It struck different when I heard that from behavioral health. Cause I always sort of looked at him like a little brother and we used to call him Heisman because I always do the pose. So for the next three months, We never let him out the gate. We trained him. And every week we would run a set of tests on him. I mean, and he could pass and he could outdo any scout when it came to scout tasks. I promise you, he was right there. You name it, he could do it. Our captain, our troop commander, Dan Enslund, goes back for R&R. Meanwhile, we are now December And we're on the last combat outpost, last enemy stronghold, and we're about to own Ramadi for us to a location the Marines wouldn't go in. And if they did go in, they took 40 to 50 people and they wanted us to take 10 to 12 uh, and do what they did. And we're, roger that. We didn't say no to missions. Our job was to do the missions. So several things. It's blocked off, probably four or five square blocks. You can't get vehicles in there. So we casually evac had to change. That's my job as the first arm. So we're now using pull-less litters 
figuring out casually collection points, like you learn, mm-hmm. uh, casually collection points, and figuring out how to evac casualties in case it happens. And we're rehearsing it. Two, we're working with a Marine unit we never worked with before. They've been a part of our brigade, but we never had to get to that section. We might have gone to their camp, we call it the ice cream factory, where they took it over. Yeah, not because they like ice creams or eat crayons. <laughs> I think it was an ice cream factory. <laughs> We're with a unit we never worked with habitually. Occasionally, we did missions, and we did some boat missions with them and some other stuff. But we had to learn our operating ways, and the Marine Corps and the Army is different. And in three, we had reports of one of the most deadliest snipers to ever attack us is going to be in the area. So, four, Dietrich's first mission. And before the captain left, we had all the leadership look at us tell us David was ready for the mission or any mission. I absolutely 100% agree with that decision. I could put that kid against any scout and he would beat you. He was ready for the mission. It just happened to be one of our worst missions we would have to do. Thanks for listening to part two with Dan Pinion. Be sure to tune in to the final episode where he continues to share the struggles, the journey, and the heroic efforts of the soldiers that he served with.